Welcome to the first 2020 podcast program from the Harriet Beecher Stowe Center in Hartford, Connecticut. The Stowe Center preserves and interprets Stowe's Hartford home, the center's collections, promotes lively discussions about her life and her work, and inspires commitment to social justice and positive change. In the wake of the corona pandemic and the required temporary closing of the Stowe Center this March, we're working to move some of our on-site programming online. We're doing this in a DIY tradition, and for our speakers, many are producing content this way for the very first time. As we learn, we hope to be part of the positive change our nation needs in this difficult moment. I can assure you the Stowe Center welcomes your participation in our work now more than ever. With that said, let me introduce the Stowe Center's first book talk series, award-winning author, Roxana Robinson. Roxana Robinson is going to discuss her latest novel, Dawson's Fall, based on the lives of her great-grandparents. In Dawson Falls, we see America at its most fragile, fraught, and malleable. Set in 1889 in Charleston, South Carolina, Robinson's tale weaves her family's journal entries and letters with a novelist's narrative grace and spans the life of her tragic hero, Frank Dawson, as he attempts to navigate the country's new political, social, and moral landscape. Roxana Robinson, a direct descendant of Harriet Beecher Stowe, is the author of 10 books, six novels, three collections of short stories, and the biography of Georgia O'Keeffe. Four of these were chosen as New York Times notable books, two as New York Times editor's choices. Her fiction has appeared in The New Yorker, The Atlantic, Harper's, Best American Short Stories, Tin House, and elsewhere. Her work has also been widely anthologized and broadcast on NPR. Please join me in welcoming Roxana Robinson as this season's first book talk series goes online. Part 1A, March 12, 1889, Charleston, South Carolina. He wakes as he is falling. He feels himself plunging into space, a great wheeling emptiness below. He's been on the edge of a cliff, grappling with a man trying to shoot him. Dawson grabs him, wrestling for the gun, but he wrenches away, pulling Dawson off balance. The man presses the gun against Dawson's chest. He hears the great enveloping sound of the shot. Then he feels the sickening shift beneath his feet as he loses his grip on the world. As he falls, Dawson grabs the man's shoulder to save himself, but instead pulls the man over with him. They fall together, still grappling, as though holding on to each other will help. Dawson's body is clenched and tight, muscles still focused on what he just had, solid ground beneath him. But instead, there is this, the long drop into whistling black. Dawson sits up, sweating. He's in the narrow bed in his dressing room. His thrashing has pulled the sheets loose, and his feet are now tangled and trapped. The room is dim and shadowy, the curtains drawn for the night. The patterned wallpaper, the tall mahogany bureau, the brass bedstead are all familiar, but irrelevant. He's still in his nightmare, heart hammering. 
He still feels the terror of pitching into space, the body's last clenching try at holding on to life. He still feels the man's coarse sleeve in his grasp, smells his sour rankness. The sound of the gunshot still explodes in his ears. He kicks his feet free and gets up. He goes through the connecting door into their bedroom, where his wife lies submerged in the big mahogany bed, nearly hidden by pillows. She lifts her head and sees his face. What is it? The struggle is still running through him. He takes a breath and shakes his head. In his body, it's still happening. He begins walking up and down the room. This is familiar too, the mirrored armoire, the high sleigh bed, the dressing table, also irrelevant in this swift current of feeling. What's wrong? Sarah sits up, the white nightgown crumpled high around her throat. I had a dream, says Dawson. A man had a gun and was going to shoot me. I was trying to stop him. We were on the edge of a cliff. Again, he feels himself pitching into emptiness. He can smell the man. Then he did shoot me, and I fell. I can feel it still. The dream possesses him, and some other moment flickers into his mind when he stood somewhere high, behind him, emptiness. My poor Frank. Sarah's hair is in its nighttime braid, the loosened strands making a fine, furred halo around her face. So that's the beginning of the book. Now I'm going to skip a little bit and take you to take you back several years. This is part 1B. Now we're going to Sarah Morgan Dawson's life and we're going back a few years. Sarah Fowler Morgan was the seventh of eight children. Her father was a judge in Baton Rouge. This, pa this passage takes place at the start of the Civil War when the family was beginning to split up because of it. Two of Sarah's brothers, Gibbs and George, had already left to fight in it. Her favorite brother, Henry, who was called Hal, had just returned from Paris where he'd been studying medicine. He had joined the Confederate Army as a surgeon. When he arrived home in Baton Rouge, the Morgans gave a party to welcome him. Afterward, he told them he was going down to New Orleans to talk to his oldest brother, who lived there, about setting up his practice after the war. But that wasn't true. After the party, he'd had an argument with another young man, and he'd challenged him to a duel. Dueling was illegal in Baton Rouge, so they had gone down to New Orleans. So this is April 30th, 1861, Baton Rouge, Louisiana. Sarah Fowler Morgan, 19 years old, woke as it was starting to turn light. The air was cool and damp, and she heard the quick pattering rhythm of rain on the leaves outside. Across the room, in the mirror on the armoire, was the reflection of her high bed, shrouded in netting. At the windows, the tall white curtains shifted slowly in the rainy breeze, belling, collapsing. The shadows, the sound of rain, and the dim, pearly light filled the room with something like sadness. Sarah felt the sadness like a waft of air. It was too early to get up, and the rain meant the trip would be postponed. 
She turned over, settled her face into the pillow, blocking out the morning, and slept again. Now I'm skipping a little into this day. Grief can rise up and overwhelm a family the way a rogue wave overwhelms a ship, looming enormous, curved green and shining. It towers overhead, too large to consider or understand. It is suddenly upon you, exploding, erupting, engulfing you within its glassy depths. Sarah woke again later, rain still pattering on the leaves. The roads would be mud. The trip called off. They'd planned to visit Linwood, her sister-in-law Lydia's father's plantation. But it was 20 miles away in East Feliciana Parish. Sarah got out of bed. The floorboards were cool against her bare feet, and a shiver rippled up her back. She poured water into the basin and sluiced it onto her face and neck. Her skin tightened in the cold, and she rubbed the towel hard against her cheeks, her closed eyes. She unraveled her night braid, her fingers flicking quickly in and out, then brushed the thick rope of hair. She twisted it up into a chignon. She held it with one hand while she took the hairpins from the crystal dish and drove them in, one by one, to hold it firm. Something from that early morning sadness stayed with her. I'm skipping forward into that day again. After dinner, they all went walking near the state house. Sarah and Miriam, her sister, their best friends, the Bruno girls, and some others. Sarah was walking with a cousin, Henry Walsh. The rain had stopped, but the trees were still wet, and spattering drops cascaded suddenly from the branches. A fine mist rose from the gravel walks. Your brother Gibbs looks so handsome, Henry said, with his hair cut short. It made him look more like Hal, said Sarah. Hal's the handsomest in the family. He was on her mind. When it started to rain again, Miriam went back with the Bruno girls, but Sarah went home. The house was empty, and she went into the parlor and took up her guitar. She wanted to play the song Hal had brought back. It was a melancholy march about a young man setting off to war. Partons pour la Syrie. Hal said, in Paris, everyone was singing it. It was sentimental, but the melody lifted it into poignancy. As she sang, Sarah's parents appeared in the doorway with Lydia. Her mother said she was going upstairs. Lydia was going home. Her father stood behind them, his face troubled. When they were gone, Sarah began singing again. She heard Hal's voice in her mind. When she reached the end of the verse, she heard her mother begin to scream. She thought of her father's troubled face. He must be ill. She threw down the guitar and ran after them. Halfway up the stairs, she heard her mother's voice again. This time, it was a low keening, a sound so dark and frightening that Sarah turned and fled downstairs and out the front door. In the street, she heard herself calling Gibbs, though he was gone to the war.
Lydia came running after her, catching her by the arm. Zadie, I'll tell you, she said. But Sarah pulled away. Father, Sarah called and ran back inside. She started up the stairs again, Lydia behind her. Let me tell you, Lydia said, but Sarah wouldn't stop. She ran down the hall and burst into her parents' bedroom. It looked lit by lightning. Her mother lay on her back on the floor. Her father knelt over her, holding her hands. Her mother's face was white. As Sarah came in, her mother looked up. Hal is dead, she cried in a strange, low voice. You loved him, Sarah. Sarah laughed. No, he's not, she said. Father, tell her he's not. For a moment, her father didn't look up. When he raised his face, it was glistening. It's true, my darling. Our Harry's dead. It was the sheen on his cheek that made her know it. Everything inside her stopped. Her heart, her blood, her brain, before that vast green wave, rising up and breaking over her, so high that she couldn't turn from it. There was nowhere to turn. A family's decline can be slow and imperceptible or sudden and precipitous. It was Hal's death which taught the Morgans that what they had always taken for granted was not theirs. They did not possess it. Fortune, healthy children, a stable life. Whatever you have, you think is yours. You believe you're entitled to it. But you will come to learn that you were entitled to nothing. So that's what I'll read from the early part of the book. And now I'm going to move forward from 1861 to 1876. July 14th, 1876, Hamburg, South Carolina. Hamburg was a small town on the Savannah River, just across from Augusta, Georgia. Three bridges, two train, one wagon, connected the two towns, but Hamburg was in South Carolina, in the old Edgefield district. It lay on low, swampy land, and when the river rose, the water flooded into the streets. The town had been founded 30 years earlier as a market center, selling slaves, whiskey, and cotton. The cotton came on wagons from the countryside and left on trains heading down the river. The market was lively, but the town kept flooding, and when the railroad bridges went in, trade moved across the river to higher ground. The town dwindled, and white people moved away. By this time, Hamburg held only about 500 people, mostly Negroes. There were also some Jews. The mayor, magistrate, marshal, and police chief were all Negroes. Communities like these sprang up after the war. Freedmen didn't want to stay on plantations, and they moved to towns and cities. Now they could go to school, own land, and vote. In 1872, black freedmen held one held in 1872, black freedmen held 105 
of the 156 seats in the state legislature. Negroes were a majority here because South Carolinians had been some of the largest slaveholders in the country. Before the war, the Negroes were slaves. Now they were voters. The charge, the change was unsettling to the whites. Hamburg celebrated the 4th with a reading of the Declaration of Independence and then a parade. The whole town turned out, standing along the edge of the dusty street. Mothers in long skirts and bright kerchiefs held babies in their arms and little children by their hands. Young women with polished dark faces and white teeth leaned against each other. Small boys dodged among the grown-ups. Men in dark jackets and straw hats stood watching. Sam Cook, the intendant, read the declaration. At the end of each line, people called out, Amen, or Yes, Lord. After the intendant finished, the crowd cheered and everyone looked up Market Street. Company A of the 9th Regiment of the National Guard, all Negro, all in uniform and in formation, all carrying rifles, were marching toward them, heads high, arms swinging. They were singing. A drummer and a fifer on a six-hole cane fife rattled out the song. Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. He is trampling out the vintage where the grapes of wrath are stored. He hath loosed the the fateful lightning of his terrible swift sword. His truth is marching on. The crowd took it up. They were celebrating two kinds of independence, one from the English king, one from the white master. Not everyone knew the verses, but they all knew the chorus. Glory, glory, hallelujah. Captain Doc Adams, chin high, walked beside his men. He was solid with a barrel chest and short arms. He looked straight ahead. The crowd began to clap. A woman hoisted up her toddler, his back against her shoulder, his feet on her forearm, so he could see. Company A had been founded six years earlier by the governor. It was a state militia. After the war, when the white people resisted the new laws, the state governments established armed militias to enforce them. Company A was one of these. Its first commander was Prince Rivers, who was now the town magistrate. Six months ago, when Doc Adams took over the company, he expanded it to 84 members and started weekly drills on Market Street. Market Street ran parallel to the river, from the Augusta Bridge to the Edgefield Road. It was more like a plaza than a street, over 100 feet wide so the big cotton wagons could maneuver. On one side were warehouses. On the other side, On the other side, tall grass stretched all the way to the river. It was flat and smooth, with a carriage track down its center, just wheel ruts through the grass. Company A marched in four columns, 20 men in each. The center columns took the carriage ruts. The outer ones marched through the grass, trampling it. A horse and buggy had been standing at the far end of Market Street, near the bridge to Augusta. The two white men sitting in it watched as the declaration was read. The militia marched toward the crowd, 
their rifle barrels catching the sun. The crowd lined the edge of Market Street. Older ladies fanned themselves. The children were playing, not paying attention. The mothers were talking and laughing. When the troops approached the podium, the horse and buggy began to move, heading down Market Street toward the marchers. The horse was a chestnut, smooth and glossy. He jogged slowly, tossing his head. The driver had touched him with a whip, but held the reins tight, making him nervous. The roof of the buggy shadowed the men inside, so it wasn't until it got close that Doc Adams could see their faces. It was Henry Getson and Thomas Butler from Edgefield. Part two. Now I want to talk a bit about how I went about writing the book. In order to write it, I needed to know these people very well. Both of them were writers. Frank published his Civil War memoirs, and he wrote editorials nearly every day for 25 years. Sarah's Civil War diaries were published as well, and she also wrote columns for the Charleston News and Courier. They both wrote hundreds of letters. So I was able to learn with a good deal of precision what they thought during those years. And fortunately for my project, their papers are all part of an archive at Duke University. So I sat down to read their writings and to find out who my great-grandparents were. Frank Dawson was born in London in an educated educated upper-middle-class Catholic family. When he graduated from boarding school, he spoke fluent French as well as Latin and Greek. He was supposed to go on to university, but a family tragedy interfered, and there was no money for tuition. Frank began working as a journalist, just as the Civil War was beginning. The way the war was reported in England was different from the way it was reported in New England. In England, they wanted the cotton for their textile mills in the north. England was our trading partner. They reported that the southern states were brave little heroes that stood up to the northern bully, as the English barons had stood up to King John, demanding the Magna Carta. So when Dawson heard about what was going on, he decided to volunteer. His best friend was French, and he joined the Foreign Legion. Dawson decided to join the Confederacy. He was an engaging subject, energetic, smart, and enterprising. He joined the Confederate Navy, though he didn't know how to sail. When the Navy failed, he joined the cavalry, though he didn't know how to ride. By the end of the war, he was a captain. Afterward, he took any job he could find and went back into journalism. He and a friend started a newspaper, living in the back of the office and working around the clock. He met Sarah nearly 10 years later and fell in love with her at once. They married and had two children, one of them my grandmother. So I had the story, but I still couldn't reconcile the two things, slavery and people of good conscience. Sarah's family, who were devout Episcopalians, and as I knew from her diaries, kindly and charitable, owned nine human beings. What I learned in my research was the presence of religious doctrine that supported slavery. All across the South, ministers preached a patchwork set of claims to do this, to support slavery, saying that slavery had existed in ancient times, that Jesus had not condemned it, that God had created two unequal races, 
and that one should be the steward of the other. If you believed what your minister told you, then as a good Christian, it was your duty to be a good steward of the lives within your care. If you didn't believe it, then it was your duty to stand up and speak out against your minister and the whole community and the whole Southern culture. Remember, in the 19th century, the South was practically a theocracy. Everyone went to church every Sunday. So in order to speak out against this doctrine, you would be challenging everything in your world. Plus, it would be blasphemy. You would be challenging the Lord, according to these ministers. So the number of abolitionists in the South was small. I also came to understand how violence became part of Southern culture. Slavery depends on violence. No one can be talked into becoming a slave. Violence to the body is essential to the institution. So the entire South was part of a culture that used whips, chains, shackles, bits, and guns to control a large and powerful group. The fact that violence is related to slavery and was part of Southern culture was reflected in a statistic from 1878. In that year, New Hampshire, Vermont, and Massachusetts each reported one murder. South Carolina reported 128. So the South had been using violence as a way to resolve conflict for 200 years. White against black, white against white, and black against black, though seldom black against white. Frank Dawson loathed violence, and he refused to carry a gun. He spoke out on behalf of black freedmen's rights, on occasion. I wish I could report that he was a perfect liberal progressive, but it wouldn't be true. He had mixed feelings about race, and I suspect that he was uncomfortable that the freedmen had taken over the, sl- the state legislation. Whites were not ready to cede power to black freedmen. But what Dawson absolutely couldn't tolerate was violence against the blacks, and he made his feelings public very forcefully in his editorials. So in that way, he stood up for liberal principles, and he opposed a foundational aspect of Southern racial politics. Was he perfect? Certainly not. But learning his story and his wife Sarah's informed me about the Southern side of this story. Reading their Civil War diaries and their memories, this Northern abolitionist, me, came to understand what it was like to be in a land war, to have your house destroyed, your brothers die, what it was like on the human side of that history. It allowed me to consider what it would be like to be Southern, which my Beecher blood had never encouraged me to consider. It took me five years to write the book. One of the ways I did research was to use the historical archives of the Charleston Post and Courier, which is still extant today. I would sit down at my computer and call up any day of my great-grandfather's editorial rule and see what he was thinking and what he had to say about it. As I was working on the book, our own current racial politics and the politics of violence became increasingly important 150 years later. I had thought I was writing a book about my family, but I was also writing a book about my country. Race and racial politics are part of our country's history. 
learning about the people who lived through the Civil War, which was fought over the issue of race, gave me a new understanding of why these things are so hardly fought. If it's your own family you're dealing with, you can't help but know them, understand who they are. Because if it's your own family you're dealing with, you can't help but know them, understand who they are. Because part of them is you. Apart from these larger issues was the question of what sort of book to write, what form it should take. Frank and Sarah were both good writers. I didn't want to substitute my voice for theirs when theirs were so clear and powerful. I was tempted to write a straightforward biography, since that was a form I knew and liked, but I was reluctant to give up the tools of the novelist, dialogue, and interior monologue, since those are the ways in which we reveal ourselves most vividly. In the end, I've cho I chose a hybrid form, which I call a biographical novel. All the facts are true, but the dialogue and interior monologue come from me. In spite of all the material I had, it was daunting to try to write about another place and another century. I've had experience in finding my way into other people's lives. I inhabited the mind of a 26-year-old Marine when I wrote Sparta. But this seemed much more remote from my own world. I don't think I'd have dared to try it if it hadn't been for the fact that in some ways I already, I already knew these peoples. I don't think I'd have dared try it if it hadn't been for the fact that in some ways I already knew these people in ways I hadn't even considered. Family culture is passed down in all sorts of ways, much of it invisible. When I read Sarah's diaries about her garden in Charleston, I felt a thrill of familiarity. We shared identical feelings about trees and vines and flowers. There was a decrepit shed in the back of the house in Char on Bull Street that she was told there was a decrepit shed in the back of the house on Bull Street that she was told should be taken down. But she wouldn't let anyone touch it because a stag antler fern was growing was growing abundantly across it. She honored the fern over the shed. Yes, I thought. Go, Sarah. And I read the reminiscences of Warrington, their son, in which he talked of his father's musical ability. Frank loved music, and when he went to a concert or an opera that, he, that he'd never heard before, he'd come home and sit down at the piano and play the piece by ear. That memory of Warrington's gave me a chill, because that's what my father did in my household. Writing the book about my family during one of the darkest times in our history gave me a way to understand why we acted as we did, what it felt like, and how to reconcile my own feelings with theirs. I don't agree with some of their beliefs, but I'm sure my great-grandchildren won't agree with some of mine. How could you do it, they'll ask me. You knew what was happening, and yet you drove a gas-powered car. You used electric lights. We all, share a we all share a national history, and one of the most important things we can do is understand it. One of the best ways we can do that is through learning to understand our own family. Henry Ward Beecher came to Charleston in 1865, where he gave an oration after the war. Dawson wasn't yet there yet, 
They didn't meet then. But they met in me. I'm the product of their mingling and their opposing views, as we all are the products of our ancestors, with their own strange and distant opinions. They are part of us, and we are part of them. The only way we can move onward is to understand where we came from. I'm grateful to Frank Dawson and his family, and to Great Aunt Hattie and hers, for offering their thoughts to enrich mine. Thank you for listening.